Dialectical Behavior Therapy was created in the 1980s by Marsha Linehan in Seattle, Washington. Today, DBT is taught all over the world. We're two therapists who believe everyone can benefit from DBT skills. I'm Kate. I'm Michelle. And And this this is is DBT and Me. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And it is a milestone Q&A. Q&A 55. It's a good one. It feels like a big deal for some reason. Because <laughs> we have okay. a base tan math system. That's why it feels important. <laughs> exactly. That's the reason why. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Now I'm done being a nerd. <laughs> we can move on to other things. It's all good. You get to kick us off with the first one here. Oh, good point. I too can read. So I will read. The first one says, so I've created boundaries. How do I cope with the intense feelings of guilt for finally saying no and sometimes not being able to be there for people when they need it? Mm -hmm. Good fucking question. That's my add on. That's what I thought too. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've been here. I've been here a lot of times. I feel like, you know, we really talk a lot about the importance of setting boundaries and how to set boundaries. And then it's not really talked about as much as I think would be helpful to really discuss the then what after you set the boundary. And that's really what this listener is speaking to is I've done it. Now what? (laughs) And this is what I'm dealing with after the fact. The very first thing that came to mind for me here as for what may be bringing up the intense feelings of guilt is it made me wonder if this listener is setting boundaries that they might feel like others want them to set or if they're Mm. setting the boundary that they feel like they should set Ah. and rather and that they're doing those things rather than focusing on what's a boundary that I can set that I can truly see myself sticking to you know you don't want to necessarily set like really high big boundaries on things always just set a set a small boundary (laughs) and then see how that feels to stick to um because my guess is that there will be less guilt if it's a boundary that feels more realistic to set and to keep and a boundary that just feels a little more comfortable rather than a boundary that I'm not saying this is what this listener is doing, but we hear these things a lot where people are just like, well, the boundary that I'm going to set is that I'm just never going to talk to that person again. No, <laughs> maybe that's not always the the right boundary to set. Maybe the right boundary to set is I'm not going to respond to this text right now. I'll respond to it when I feel ready in like an hour. Maybe that's more realistic boundary. And so the smaller the boundary, potentially the less guilt there might be. As far as DBT skills go and coping with the guilt, I really think that pretty much any distress tolerance skill is going to be your friend here. I don't care which one you pick. After setting the boundary, this is really what distress tolerance was designed for, is that now you've done something, there are certain circumstances in place, and you're trying to tolerate the uncomfortable emotions that come in the aftermath of whatever the new situation is. 
So when you're setting the boundary and when you notice feelings of guilt coming up, again, I don't care which one you pick, you can pick any. And I'm not even naming all of them here, but I think I'm hitting most of them. <laughs> you could choose accepts, you could choose improve, you could choose self-soothing or radical acceptance. Any of them could be helpful when you are in the aftermath of setting the boundary. And the other thing from an emotion regulation standpoint that might be helpful could be using some opposite action for guilt. Assuming that the boundary that you've set is not an unrealistic, harsh boundary, um, assuming that the guilt that you're feeling about it has nothing really to do with the boundary itself, but it's just really about I don't know, old programming for you, messages that you've gotten throughout your life about boundaries and whether it's right or wrong to set them. And that's why you're feeling the guilt. Yeah, opposite action could be really helpful here. And I was looking up before we started recording some examples that DBT recommends for opposite action for guilt, just so I could refresh my memory. And a couple that I really liked, I'm certainly not stating all of them here. These were just a few that stood out for me. One is to not apologize that's a big one. I think that becomes super tempting after we set boundaries sometimes. We set the boundary and then in the same breath, we're apologizing for setting it. So make sure that you're not apologizing. And also when you are um, maybe perhaps in situations where you're having to reinforce the boundary and maybe remind the person of the boundary that you've set or that kind of a thing to really make sure that you are communicating in a way where you look proud. That's the word that DBT used. I like the word confident. Make sure that you are really not expressing remorse or regret for the boundary that you've set. Look like you mean it and that you know that you're doing something that's an okay thing to do by setting this boundary. So make sure that your body language is really communicating that. If again, you do need to come back to the boundary or if, yeah, the person is pushing back against it, um, make sure that you're standing firm in it and appearing confident in spite of your guilt. Those might be a couple things that you can do from a practical standpoint that might offset it a little bit. Ah, I love that. Hey. I. Uh... <laughs> I have at the start of my notes just saying what Michelle said, which is my uh, somewhat uh, brief way of saying, yeah, I love the skills that you um, that you referenced uh, here. And I would just tack on a couple of additional ones that might be useful for this person. Uh, the first one being check the facts, right? Asking yourself, have you actually done something bad with your boundary? Right? There can be, it's easy when we feel guilt to run with it, right? And assume that we wouldn't be feeling guilt if we hadn't done something wrong. Uh, but I don't know about this listener, but I can say I certainly have an overactive guilt gland. It's very squishy and easily prodded uh, into a response. Guilt gland. I love it. <laughs> yeah, an overactive guilt gland, right? Hi hyper guilt, right? Instead of hypo guilt, right? <laughs> uh, right? And so it, it can be really important to investigate feelings of guilt, to look into them more deeply and find out if they're actually based on having done something wrong, bad, immoral, uh, or if they're just maybe something that was indoctrinated into our brains through our upraising in one way or another. So uh, check the facts, I think could be really helpful there. Um, and also wise mind, 
right? Coming back into a sort of wise mind space, right? Where you have given space to your emotions, right? It's not about shutting down or invalidating those uh, feelings of guilt or shame or whatever else is coming up for you. But you're also not letting go of or losing sight of your reason mind either, right? So maybe the reason mind can be the part telling you, you didn't do anything wrong by saying no, right? Like that was okay. Uh, even while your emotion mind is is having a big struggle with the guilt, right? So just trying to make sure you're honoring your whole self there, keeping your whole self online as much as possible uh, can do a lot to help mitigate the sort of runaway emotional states uh, that can sometimes come, especially associated with guilt. So not too much to add there, but another couple skills I thought might be useful. Yeah, I think those are useful. Okay, this one says... I feel very stuck and feel very disconnected. I have two kids with severe anxiety and school refusal. My son was recently diagnosed with autism and we met, oh, sorry. And we meet with Easter Seals twice a week for him. Plus we meet with a social worker for a program that is intended to help us get help. My daughter is 16 and started working in October. She does really well working. Unfortunately, her school refusal kicked back up and you can't work without a work permit and you can't get a work permit unless you go to school. I'm sitting here today getting a tension headache because I know what is coming. To make matters worse, my daughter buys things when stressed and depressed. I don't know how to prepare myself for this. Oh, that sounds like a lot, a lot, a lot of stress in one place. And so I just first off want to say hats off to dealing as well as you can with an incredibly stressful and or difficult situation. Uh, though diving right into some skills that I thought would be relevant or helpful potentially for this listener, uh, unsurprisingly self-soothe tops my list, right? When there's a bunch of stuff that's overwhelming and difficult and you can't necessarily change, right? I'm a big fan of turning to self-soothing for some gentle, right, present, grounded self-care. Radical acceptance. I have in brackets here so much, right? There is so much going on in this this, uh, parent's uh, story that I, yeah, I was just like, all right, having a child on the autism spectrum, there's a thing that needs to be radically accepted, right? daughter who at 16, you probably can't literally make do things anymore, right? Uh, Having the struggles with attendance at school, um, right? All of these different uh, elements of parenting that, yeah, I'm sure Michelle knows some of that I don't even know. But, uh, right, there's so many elements where you need to bring in this idea of radical acceptance. Uh, It is what it is, and you can't, uh, yeah, you you have to accept it because there's nothing else to be done. Uh, mindfulness. So one of the things I was thinking when you were talking about getting this tension headache is that your headache is borrowed from, to just quote what the person wrote, from knowing what's coming. And so just a gentle reminder that you can't quite, right? To say you know what's coming is overstating it a bit. And so you might have less tension and be able to struggle a little bit less if you could stay more in the present moment, right? No one's going to be mindful 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, not the, not the idea, but to just go back there, right? Try and bring yourself back to a mindful place when you notice yourself getting overwhelmed by stresses of kind of imagining what the future is going to look like. 
Um, speaking of imagining what the future is going to look like, uh, <laughs> I do think cope ahead could also be useful here, right? You don't actually, right, in quotes again, know what's coming, but there are some scenarios you can imagine coming, right? Like I, I'm making something up because I don't know how this works, but if, for instance, you know, if your kid misses enough school, you're going to end up having some kind of meeting with their teacher or principal or vice principal or something at the school, that's an event that you could use cope ahead to help yourself with, right? So imagine yourself going through that meeting and acting in the way you want to act, right? Um, you still can't control the scenario itself, but it gives you a leg up on being able to have some self-control once you get into that situation. I think those are my things. Hmm. I think you knocked it out of the park with the skills you chose there. Um, yeah, so... I'm not going to touch on skills as much, <laughs> very briefly. Um, but I mean, the first thing that came to me was like, wow, listener, like you are doing an amazing job trying to get your kids the help and the resources that they need, especially your son. So, I mean, and you said like recently, um, recently determined that your son's autistic. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a lot of adjusting that your family is going through to make sure that you're providing him the support that he needs and stuff like this. I mean, you're just doing an incredible job. So that felt important to start off with saying, and Kate, I realize this, I think, I think what I'm actually about to touch on is a little bit of radical acceptance here. You just named <laughs> oh, it. Oh, probably. <laughs> um, no, but that's perfect, right? Because I did not use that term in what I was I didn't think of it as radical acceptance until you were talking about radical acceptance. I was like, oh, yeah, that is, I guess, basically what I'm getting at here, oh, which is that the unfortunate reality is that your kids will probably face some degree of natural consequences for missing school. Maybe not immediately, maybe down the line, but you are worried about that understandably, of what does this mean for them in the present? What does this mean for them in the future if they're refusing school? And that is a very tough pill to swallow as a parent. And it's also not something to beat yourself up over. Um, and neither Kate or I have children who are teens at least, well, I don't know what age your son is. You don't mention that here. You mentioned your daughter's 16. Um, I assume your son is maybe somewhere pre-teen-ish age at least. I mean, you're in a different stage of parenting than I am in for sure because I have a less than two-year-old. So I'm I'm not here. <laughs> I'm not here with this. Um, but boy, yeah, it's, all, it's, I think, a tough pill to swallow that gets swallowed over and over and over again, sometimes daily as a parent, where it's like, oh, yeah, this little, for me anyways, this little, yours aren't so little anymore, but this little being is his own person. Like he is, he is going to do things that I wish he didn't <laughs> and that I don't like. Um, you're just facing that on a much, much larger scale. And that is exactly where radical acceptance comes into play, like Kate was naming, is Hopefully that will help decrease the amount of self-beating up that you might be doing on the inside when your kids are doing things that you don't want them to do. As far as 
Practically speaking, though, what could potentially help, I mean, I loved Kate's recommendation of mindfulness in particular. I love how you spoke about that, Kate. Um, I was thinking along the lines, I was looking back up the episode. Um, it was posted way, way back on September 23rd, 2020. <laughs> What a time. Um, but the title of the episode is Strategies for Increasing Behaviors You Want. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, that could be a helpful one to listen to. And really, DBT has this whole section in the manual that talks about really some behavioral concepts that actually really don't have much to do with DBT. <laughs> These were all ideas that were created by people in the psychology field long before DBT existed, but DBT saw the potential benefits of using these things. And so I would recommend listening to that episode where we go over that stuff more in depth. But I'll summarize it here by saying that a couple things you could try. Pick one or the other. Don't pick both one or the other, you get to decide based off of your kids and what you think will be most effective for them. But you can either try to implement some logical consequences or you could implement some rewards for school refusal. So what I mean by that is if you go the logical consequences route, you can basically decide if you miss school, you lose, fill in the blank here, and you get to pick something they care about, whatever it may be. So then, again, this is about you letting go of the control of trying to get them to go to school and make it happen, but just recognizing if they decide not to, this is then what's going to follow. And the choice is really left up to them of if they want to face that consequence or if they don't. And then your job is just to stick to whatever consequence you decide for what they would lose out on. That's what the logical consequences piece could look like. The reward piece could, of course, look the opposite. So if you go to school, you get fill in the blank here and you get to pick something that they really want that could motivate them. And you can set that bar as low or as high as you want to, depending on where they are. So it might be something like if you go to school every day for a week or if you go to school I don't know, depending on how much they're missing. <laughs> if you go to school 50% of the time this month or whatever it is, whatever makes sense for your kids and your circumstances, pick something that you think they would really want and that's realistic to give them. Don't promise things that you can't deliver on, <laughs> but pick something that you think would actually really motivate them and say, hey, if you attend school, again, yeah, for this many days in a row or this percentage of time, you're going to get this. And that may motivate them to make a change. So you could try either of those strategies with implementing a consequence or implementing a reward. Maybe it would help. Maybe it wouldn't. But it's worth a try to see what would happen. Okay. On to the next one, then. This one reads, how do I know the difference between when to use give and when to use dear man? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, when it comes to the interpersonal effectiveness skills, and we do, we go over like the different rationales for using each one. But I think it is a good thing to review and go over again because sometimes there can be overlap <laughs> and sometimes there can be confusion around this. So forgive. Give is 
meant to be used when you're wanting to focus on the relationship with somebody, the connection that you have with that person. So this could mean either building a relationship, if this is a pretty new person in your life. This could be about maintaining or taking care of a relationship, if it's somebody that you've known for a while and you're just wanting to keep that relationship good. Or this could, or give can be used for repairing a relationship after there's been a rupture. Some kind of misunderstanding, some kind of hurt feelings. Those are all situations where you'd want to use give. Give is like a very broad interpersonal effectiveness skill, (laughs) I think. There's so many ways and reasons to use it. Dear man is really just about using it when you're focused on getting something that you want and making a request of someone else. So some of the ways that could look, that could look like, uh, I came up with a parenting example, uh, which is funny because the last listener was talking about parenting, but it could be like wanting your child to pick up their room. Uh, It could be a stereotypical example we use a lot is wanting a raise from a boss and asking for that. This could be if you need help from a friend, you're asking them to pitch in and help you with something. So anytime that you are going to somebody else and basically communicating, hey, I would like you to do blink. That's when you're going to want to use dear man. Dear man, I mean, Kate and I don't talk about dear man this way so much, but DBT as a whole certainly says that you can also use the structure of dear man for saying no to requests from other people. So you can also use dear man for that purpose. Um, The thing though that, you know, when we recorded the episodes talking about each of the interpersonal effectiveness skills, we did not talk about mixing and combining and (laughs) using them together. But I think that comes up sometimes on Q&A where we'll say like, do this skill, but do it, you know, sprinkle in or, you know, do it in this sort of way. I don't know how many times I've said things like use dear man and also make sure you're using fast, (laughs) you know, along with it or that kind of thing. So I do think that sprinkling in some give while you're using dear man can be very helpful and may really tip things in the direction of you getting what you want. If you're using the validating part of give and you're acting interested and using an easy manner while you're communicating with the other person, using some give along with dear man is, I think, great. Um, So you can certainly combine that. You would not do that in the reverse. You would not sprinkle in dear man while using give. (laughs) That direction does not work. Um, But using the elements of give while you're making a request using dear man, that can work. You can certainly use both at once if you're making a request. Yeah, I like it. Uh, let's see. So I don't have too much to say that's explicitly different from you, but just maybe another way to get to the same ideas. Uh, so one way you might think of it if you're trying to evaluate a situation and decide which way, which skill is the correct skill is you might think of it like the question of, uh, am I wanting to contribute something or gain something? Um, Now it'd be too easy to say if I'm looking to give something, I use give, though you could do that if it made it really easy for you to remember. (laughs) 
<laughs> right? So if you're using to contribute, right? If you're using to, I like the way you were talking about it, Michelle, like building a relationship, right? That's something you are contributing to. You're helping to build something. If you're maintaining something, that's a contribution and a repair, right? Those are all sort of contributions that you are making to a relationship. So that'd be an appropriate space to use give in. If on the other hand, you're looking to gain something, right? Uh, so like, again, Michelle's examples, getting someone to do whatever for you, get, you know, do a chore, give you a raise, do you a favor, lend you money, whatever. Um, and even you could almost say with the no one, though that gets a little trickier, sort of like you're hoping to gain someone's respect for your boundary. <laughs> um, it's still not something you're contributing in any way, I suppose, uh, in that sense. Uh, so that might just be another way to to think about it if you're looking at a situation and having to try and figure out which skill is the more appropriate one. Absolutely, totally hands on. Hands on? That is not what I mean. Totally. I don't even know what I was trying to say. Anyway, I agree. Uh, that. <laughs> what the fuck was I trying to say there? I don't know. My mouth just ran away with me. Uh, anyway, I agree with Michelle that you can absolutely do both at once, in part because, again, sort of just another way of thinking about it is that you know, dear man is more of a list of steps or actions uh, that you can take, whereas give is sort of more of a way of being, right? So you can perform that list of actions while being give in the way that you're performing that. So not really anything different than what you were saying, Michelle, but just a couple of different ways of thinking about the same ideas, I think. Mm -hmm. I like your question, the am I wanting to contribute something or gain something? I like that a lot. Okay, last one. So this one says, has anyone had any experience with inpatient treatment for BPD at a private facility? I have a 24-year-old daughter with BPD who's going through a divorce and is really struggling. She's engaging in risky behavior that scares me and I just don't know what to do. She's in therapy and is open to DBT but is unwilling to switch from her current therapist who does EMDR to one that provides DBT. Okay, so let's see. Uh, first and foremost, I will just own that I do not have any experience with inpatient treatment for BPD, either personally, as in having gone through it myself, or professionally. I haven't had any clients go through. Um, I'm not, well, come to think of it, I'm not sure I've had any clients go to a private inpatient facility for anything. I don't have any information mm. on what that's like now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Um Anyway, sorry, that's neither here nor there. I just realized it while I was talking. Uh, so I do not have that. Um, that said, I think Michelle's going to give some great ideas for places to find further resources. So I'm going to skip that part of your question, listener, and go on to just wanting to address your talking about being concerned, right, that your daughter is engaging in these risky behaviors. And just wanted to say that depending on the kind of risky behavior or the severity of it, you might have legitimate concerns for her safety, right? And if that's the case, if that's sort of the magnitude or severity of risky behavior that you're thinking about, uh, one thing that you might consider doing is reaching out to her current therapist. So uh, unless your daughter has signed an ROI, which is a release of information, saying that your therapist, uh, that your, that her therapist can talk to you, <laughs> I can talk. Uh, if Unless there's one of those that's signed in place, your her therapist, Jesus Christ, her therapist won't be able to respond to you or answer any questions that you might have. That said, she can listen. Uh, oh, I guess you don't say... She, do you? Anyway, 
the therapist can listen and uh, and determine, you know, what they want to do with that information. So, right, I know, uh, sexism is in totally indoctrinated into all of us. Yep. Internalized misogyny I, I for the win. <laughs> yep, the, the therapist would be female because most therapists are, but we do we do not know the gender we do of not. the daughter's therapist. We yep. have no idea. So anyway, I always love catching myself at those things. Damn <laughs> social indoctrination. Uh, anyway. <laughs> that was a really long-winded way of saying the therapist can listen to you. Therapist can't say anything to you, but the therapist can listen to you if you wanted to call and express those concerns. Or if it's really, really on the severe side of things, you might call um, whoever your emergency services are, wherever you're located, uh, to do a wellness check on your daughter. You can call local crisis lines if there's any in your area. Um, right, if there's reasons for imminent concern. So just wanted to address that, uh, right, and acknowledge that that can be a really scary uh, and intense place to be in if you're worried for the safety of your progeny. So I think those are my thoughts. On to you, Michelle. Mm-hmm. I mean, my first reaction was, I mean, I understand this listener's desire to really have her daughter do DBT. I get it um, because she has a BPD diagnosis and DBT has been shown time and time and time again for years and years to be the best course of treatment for somebody with BPD. So I get it. But what I was thinking first and foremost was like, even if DBT would like really likely help her, God, I was just so glad to read that your daughter's in therapy. And that actually that she is with a therapist who does EMDR. And I think this has maybe come up a time or two. I won't go too far into it, but EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. Uh, Kate knows, Kate's, um, I don't know if you're like certified yet in EMDR. I will be once I finish, I have to finish some supervision basically in it. So uh, it will be shortly. I've done the training. You just have to do X number of supervised hours in it before you're done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know more about EMDR. I haven't gone through any EMDR training, but EMDR, by and large, has been shown to be a pretty effective treatment for trauma. So I'm hoping that your daughter is with a therapist who is quite skilled at the EMDR work that um, they're trained in and that your daughter is benefiting from that modality. Even if EMDR is different from DBT, Hopefully your daughter is getting some benefits from that and is feeling well connected to her therapist if she's not wanting to switch. Those are all really good things that we want to build off of. Um, But to your point about like really wanting her to seek DBT treatment and considering wanting her to get like inpatient treatment at a private facility, I mean, that is going to be a tough sell. If she's not open to it. Um, this is why, as Kate was saying, it could be good for you to make contact with her therapist because the therapist may be unaware of how risky her behavior has become. The daughter may not be sharing that with the therapist and they may have no idea <laughs> about the extent of it that you do. And then it might mean potentially more coming from the therapist to recommend a higher level of treatment than it does for your daughter coming from you. As her mom, being like, hey, I think you should go inpatient. I could imagine your daughter being like, I don't want to. And then you feel kind of stuck. So even though your daughter may be able to very well benefit from that, I was thinking of kind of some, 
other, as Kate put it, like resources, some other ideas for how your daughter can still access DBT without going impatient if she's not open to that and without losing her current therapist because we know she doesn't want to lose her current therapist either. So uh, the main thing that I thought about is finding a standalone DBT group. So not trying to seek out a gold standard DBT program where she either would have to leave her current therapist or (laughs) keep working with her current therapist, but also do weekly individual therapy with a DBT therapist and do group and do phone coaching if needed and the whole nine yards. That might be a bit much for her, but I'm hopeful, depending on where you're located and what kinds of DBT resources there are for you, that you could be able to find an outpatient DBT group that meets once a week that your daughter can attend without needing to do anything else (laughs) besides just going to DBT group. That would be a potential good option for her. If she's not open to that, I mean, there's tons of DBT resources out there. And you're engaging with one of them right now as you listen to the podcast. (laughs) It always feels weird to me a little bit when people are like, I want resources on DBT. And I'm like, you know, just kind of like raising our hands over here. Um, Because, I mean, this is something you can recommend to her is to give the podcast a listen. But, I mean, there's there's tons of DBT workbooks out there if you feel like your daughter would want or be interested in reading a workbook or, you know, doing some of the exercises that are in workbooks for DBT, that could be helpful. So really just trying to get her foot in the door with DBT. Um, And as you said, sounds like she's open to DBT. That's good. Let's build off of that and let her know that you respect and understand her not wanting to switch from her current therapist and you're not trying to force her to do that. You're just wondering how she can meet with her current therapist and tack on something extra, whether that is a group or whether that is listening to the podcast or whether that is reading a workbook or whatever that may be so that she's dipping her toes into the DBT waters. Um, You can do that. So hopefully some of those things will help if getting her into inpatient treatment is too high of a bar to set, which it might be if she's not so willing to go. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, that's that for number 55. Next one's 56 and I have nothing cool to say about it. Oh, well, poor 56. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you would like your question to be featured on a future Q&A, please feel free to email us, dbtandmepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, If you want to be on a QA and a or for any reason you want to reach out, we love getting listener emails all around. Uh, Or you can join our Facebook group. Uh, which is at facebook.com slash groups slash dbt and me podcast. I never say the whole Facebook one. Uh, links will be in the show thing. Ah, that I'm remembering now the show notes. That's the thing. Yes. Um, so, <laughs> show thing. Very technical terms around here. Um, yeah. So if you have a hard time finding it, but lots of our contributions to the Q&A episodes come from our Facebook group. So happy to hear from you all either place and we'll catch you on the next one. Have a good rest of your day, guys. Thanks, everybody. To learn more about us and the DBT skills we're teaching each week, join our Facebook group. Simply log in to your Facebook profile and search for DBT and Me Podcast.